and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Um, You know what I've been doing a lot of? I've been doing a lot of reminiscing lately. Yeah. Do you remember, about- remember parties? Oh, parties and you know before i'd be like Ugh, parties but now i'm like oh parties oh parties <laughs> they were so fun especially geek bowl you know yes. we're going to be talking about this for the rest of forever because it was that, the last it event. was literally <laughs> yeah. it's literally the last time we saw anyone um but uh the party that we had the podcast get together party mixer thing on thursday was i think i mean for me the highlight oh sure yeah and we also got to meet, I mean, as we mentioned before, lots of listeners and all this stuff. But we today wanted to give a very special shout out to a young listener whose mother, whose very open-minded mother lets him want listen to our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> um, uh, one of our listeners, Declan. Uh, Declan, if you're out there, hello, Declan. We miss you. Uh, and he came up to me and Steve and gave us a very good topic suggestion for us to talk about and julia was kind enough to ta- take it on because she was already kind of ruminating about this mm-hmm. topic mm-hmm. so we would like to dedicate this particular episode to declan yes um thank you declan thank you declan <laughs> i hope we're gonna do it justice yes absolutely <laughs> so yeah we cover a lot of history on this podcast yes we do a lot of american history a lot of european history have not tackled a lot of african history and yes. so that is where we're going today um today we are going to talk about the richest man who ever lived mansa musa This is very exciting because I know horribly, I like horribly for me, know nothing about this. So I'm very excited about Excellent. hearing about this. Excellent. Yeah. So transport yourself back to a world history class that you might have had. And, and the name is probably at least familiar to you. So yes. Musa mm-hmm. the first was alive from about 1280 common era to about 1337. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also known um, historically as Mansa Musa. So he was the 10th Mansa, which means Sultan or conqueror or emperor of the Mali okay. empire, which was an Islamic West African state. And during Musa's reign, Mali may have been the largest producer of gold in the world. And oh my God. Musa has been considered one of the richest people in history. So that is the coolest thing. Yes. So first we're going to talk about the Mali Empire. Mm-hmm. So from the 8th to the 16th centuries, remarkably pure gold mined in West Africa crossed the Saharan Desert through trade routes, and it fueled economies in Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. So West Africa's resources and influence made it one of the wealthiest regions in the world during this period. Um, So what's really known about the kings of the Mali Empire is basically taken from the writings of Arab scholars. Um, The Mali Empire, also referred to as the Mandan Kurofaba, or sometimes shortened to Mandan, it was an empire in West Africa from about 1235 to 1670, it was founded by Sundiata Keita, who is alive from about 1214 to 1255. And this area became renowned for the wealth of its rulers. So the Mali Empire was the largest empire in West Africa, and it profoundly influenced the culture of West Africa through the spread of its language, law, and customs. So it first began as just like a small kingdom um, 
in the upper reaches of the Niger River, and it was centered around the town of Niani. So during the 11th and 12th centuries, it began to develop as an empire following the decline of the Ghana Empire, which was to its north. And during this period, trade routes shifted southward to the savannah, um, stimulating the growth of states in the region. So the early history of the Mali Empire, um, and early, we're considering that before the 13th century. Um, okay. The early history is a little bit unclear because there are conflicting and imprecise accounts by Arab chroniclers and oral traditionalists. Um, but as I mentioned, Sandiata Keita, he's the first ruler for which there is accurate written information. So he was a warrior prince of the Keita dynasty who was called upon to free the Mali people from the rule of the king of the Sasso Empire. So the conquest Ooh. of Sasso in about 1235 gave the Mali Empire access to the trans Saharan trade routes. Mm, so this is very, very important. important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So following the death of Sandiata Keita in about 1255, the kings of Mali were then referred to by the title Mansa, meaning okay. conqueror or sultan or emperor. So we come to our, our hero here, Mansa Musa. Mm -hmm. So not a ton is known about his early life. He was either the grandson or the grandnephew of Sandiata Keita, who was the founder of this dynasty. Um, Mansa Musa came to the throne in about 1307 when he was about 27 years old. So Konkan Musa Keita, also called Musa, came to the throne through a practice of appointing a deputy when a king goes on his pilgrimage to Mecca and later naming that deputy as his heir. So according to primary sources, Musa was actually appointed deputy of Abu Bakari Keita II, the king who was before him, um, who may have also been his brother, who had reportedly embarked on an expedition and never returned. So according to the 14th century Syrian historian Shabab al-Umari, Abu Bakari was obsessed with the Atlantic Ocean and what lay beyond it. So he reportedly cool. set off on an expedition with a fleet of 2,000 ships and thousands of men, women, and slaves. They sailed off and they never returned. Oh my gosh, 2,000 ships? Yes. And they just never returned? Well, yep. the, the, I mean, Oof. I say it all the time. The ocean is this, terrifying. It's, it's terrible, deep, long, <laughs> vast space. It's... It's, yep. that'll kill you plus it'll also you. they didn't have a lot of like i don't know uh navigation tools at the time that's true <laughs> that probably could have helped so after an entire year of no contact from abu bakari musa was declared mm -hmm. um the head of the kingdom so yeah understandable so Mansa Musa was able to extend and maintain Mali's vast empire. He, w he basically doubled its territory and made it second in size only to that of the Mongol Empire at the time. And if you remember, when we did our episode on Genghis Khan, the Mongol Empire basically stretched from like Eastern Asia all the way to like the Middle East. Yeah. So yes. it was... It was enormous. It was enormous. So the for the Mali Empire to be like second in the world only mm -hmm. to that is really incredible. Yeah. So they had an army numbering about 100,000 men, including an armored cavalry corps of about 10,000 horses. So the horses had armor. <laughs> okay. Because they just had, spoiler, they had so much like metal and riches around them that they were like, I don't know, we'll just put it on make the horse. a suit of armor for the horse. So to better govern this vast expanse of land that contained a multitude of tribes and ethnic groups, Mansa mm. Musa divided his empire into provinces with each one ruled by a governor or a farba that was appointed personally by him. 
And the administration was further improved with greater records that were kept and sent to the centralized government offices at Niani. So they're starting to centralize things. Yeah. And the wealth of the state increased thanks to taxes on trade, the Mali-controlled copper and gold mines, and the imposition of tributes from conquered tribes. Musa earned his money primarily through trade in gold and salt, which were found in abundance in West Africa at the time. Mm. So. Um, another really important thing here is Musa was one of the first truly devout Muslims to lead the Mali Empire. He attempted to make Islam the faith of the nobility, but kept to the imperial tradition of not forcing it on the populace. He could read and write in Arabic, and he took an interest in the scholarly city of Timbuktu, which he peaceably annexed in 1324. And we'll talk a little bit more about Timbuktu in a few minutes. Okay. So in the 17th year of his reign, which was the year 1324, he set out on his very, very famous pilgrimage to Mecca. And it was this pilgrimage that essentially awakened the world to the stupendous wealth of the Mali Empire. And as a devout Muslim, Musa's pilgrimage to Mecca made him well-known across Northern Africa and the Middle East. So we're doing a quick sidebar here. We're going to talk about the five pillars of Islam. Oh, okay, great. Perfect. All right, so the first, first pillar, the Shahada, is the profession of faith. There are two Shahadas in, in the... Islamic world. There is no God but God, and Muhammad is the messenger of God. The first Shahada promotes the essential unity of the faith, proclaiming that there is no God but God, and the Tawhid, which is the prayer that states no God but God, is a major component of the Islamic faith, for it asserts the monotheistic aspect of Islam, promoting Mm -hmm. unity of God as the source of existence. And then the second Shahada demonstrates God's essential mercy. So that prayer proclaims Muhammad as the last prophet, and it uses Muhammad as a prime example of guidance for all Muslims. Muhammad was the recipient of the Quran's guidance himself and now is bearer of this guidance for the rest of the Muslim community throughout history. So the Shahada has said five times a day during prayer. It's the first thing said to a newborn and the last thing said to a person on their deathbed, showing how the Muslim prayer and the pillars are instrumental from the day a person is born until the day they die. That's kind of beautiful. Yeah, no pressure, you know? Yeah, Yeah, that's true. The second pillar is salat or prayer. So prayers in in the Islamic faith are done five times a day at set strict times with the individual facing Mecca. And these prayers are performed at dawn, noon, in the afternoon, in the evening, and night. Uh, Verses from the Quran are recited either loudly or silently. Muslims must wash before prayer, and this washing is called wudu, or purification. The prayer is accompanied by a series of set positions, and at every change in position, the prayer says Allah is great. A Muslim may perform their prayer anywhere, offices, universities, at home, whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. However, the mosque is actually preferable because the mosque allows also for fellowship. Oh, sure, yeah, that makes sense. Sometimes you can't make it to the mosque five times a day. Five times a day, yeah, especially in a modern era, so... Yeah. Okay. The third pillar is zakat or almsgiving. And this is this is actually very important with Musa's story. So um, the word zakat can be defined as purification and growth because it allows an individual to achieve balance and encourages new growth through almsgiving or charity. It is obligatory for all Muslims who are able to do so. It's the personal responsibility of each Muslim to ease the economic hardship of others and to strive toward eliminating inequality. So zakat consists of spending a portion of one's wealth for the benefit of the poor or needy. So if one is wealthy, then he or she needs to pay a portion of their income. If a person doesn't have much money, they should compensate for it in different ways, such as through good deeds and good behavior toward others. Mm -hmm. Perfect. 
The fourth pillar is SOM, S-A-W-M, or fasting. So fasting takes place during Ramadan, which is the holy month in the Islamic calendar. Um, or the lunar calendar. And so this means that the month of Ramadan shifts 11 days each year. Mm -hmm. Um, Psalm is directly stated in the Quran saying, quote, eat and drink until the whiteness of the day becomes distinct from the blackness of the night at dawn, then complete the fast till night. So the fast occurs from dawn to sunset each day, during which time believers are expected to prohibit themselves from any food, drink, sexual intercourse, or smoking. Um, Mm -hmm. Three types of fasting are recognized by the Quran. There's ritual fasting. Fasting is compensation for repentance and also ascetic fasting. And then finally, the fifth pillar, Hajj, pilgrimage. Mm. So during one's life, a Muslim is required to make the pilgrimage to Mecca during the 12th month of the lunar calendar. This ritual consists of making the journey to Mecca. So every Muslim man dresses alike in a straightforward fabric to emphasize their uniformity. Ladies wear a less complex type of their ordinary dress. So pilgrims put on two white sheets when they enter the sanctuary area of Mecca and enter a state of iram or purity. And when at Mecca, the pilgrims go to the Kaaba in the mosque and they walk around it in a circle. Then they pray together in official ceremonies and then they go out to perform the standing ceremony to remember the farewell sermon of Muhammad on the Arafat. On the return trip, pilgrims stop in Mina, where they throw seven stones at stone pillars that represent Satan as to express their hatred for him. That's kind of fun. Everyone should hate Satan. (laughs) You get through all the praying and the rituals and Mm -hmm. stuff, and now it's time to go through rocks. (laughs) That's great. Um, After a Muslim makes the trip to Mecca, they are known as a Hajj or a Haja, so one who has made the pilgrimage. Um, The Quran specifically says that only those capable of making the pilgrimage are required. So if you're... If you're sick, if Mm -hmm. you don't have the means to do so, um, all kinds of things. Like, it's okay if you don't make it. But if if you're able to do it, you should do it. You should probably do Mm -hmm. it, yeah. So the reason for this journey is to follow in the footsteps of the Prophet Muhammad, hoping to gain enlightenment as Muhammad did when he was in the presence of Allah. So um, Mecca, quick refresher. Mecca is a city in the Hejazi region of Saudi Arabia, located about 40 miles inland from Jeddah, in a narrow valley, about 900 feet above sea level, and about 210 <laughs> miles south of Medina. Just, you know, get yourself Yeah, get myself situated. oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, so its population in 2012 was about 2 million people, although visitors more than triple this number every year oh, during sure, the Hajj. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. Mecca, very famous and sacred because it is the birthplace of Muhammad. Um, a cave about 2 miles from Mecca was the site of Muhammad's first revelation of the Quran. And Mecca is home to the Kaaba, which is one of Islam's holiest sites, also called the House of God. And it is also the direction of Muslim prayer. So it is regarded as the holiest city in Islam. The Kaaba, which I feel like I'd seen a picture of this before and been like, what the heck is that? So the Mm -hmm. Kaaba is a building at the center of Islam's most important mosque, the Great Mosque of Mecca. It is a cuboid stone structure made of black granite from Mecca, Mm -hmm. right? Like it almost looks like... I'm, I don't mean to sound like glib here, but it almost looks like like a data processing plant. Like it's like a big black <laughs> yeah. cube. But yeah. turns it's, out it's very old and very sacred. <laughs> yes. It's very, it's a cool, um, because, you know, you think about like, okay, so you think about like ancient structures. Yes. And we, you have an idea of what an ancient structure looks like in the Middle East mm-hmm. or in Asia or in Europe or wherever. So you have an idea that it looks you know, maybe a little bit um, 
uh, crude mm-hmm. and because the technology wasn't available yeah. at that point. But the Kaaba is so, you're right, like it's like perfectly square. Yes. It's very black and shiny. Yes. It's almost like otherworldly. To, I mean, I would say to Yeah, you almost eyes. don't know. Yeah. Like when you see a photo of it and you're not familiar with it, you're like almost don't know what you're looking at. Yeah, so exactly. it's it's a it's a cuboid structure made of mm-hmm. black granite from Mecca. It's about 43 feet tall. And so since it is a cube, it's, you know, those are all its dimensions. Yeah. Um, inside the Kaaba, the floor is made of marble and limestone and the interior walls are clad with tiled white marble about halfway to the roof and darker trimmings along the floor. Um, so the Kaaba itself has been through many iterations, but the existing structure right now dates to about 1629, which is still like... Still super that's old. That's almost... Yeah, right? That's still like almost 400 years old. And it kind of, lo- like, it kind of looks modern just because... It is a black cube. <laughs> yeah, you know because I mean? it's so simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. And so it is in the center of the Great Mosque, which, you know, is is a, maybe a little bit more elaborate from the outside. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so that is, that's the that's the very important building right there, the Kaaba, K-A-A-B-A. Mm-hmm. So I'm done with my sidebar. Okay. We're talking about Musa again. So his very, okay. very famous pilgrimage. So he made this trip between 1324 and 1325, and his procession reportedly included tens of thousands of men, all wearing brocade and Persian silk, including about 12,000 enslaved persons who each carried about four pounds of gold bars on their persons. Oh, my gosh. There were heralds who were dressed in silks, carrying gold staffs, who organized horses and handled bags. Musa provided all necessities for the procession, feeding the entire company of men and animals, including about 80 camels, which carried somewhere between 50 and 300 pounds of gold dust apiece. Gold dust? Yes. Yeah, you know, so we had the gold bars, the guys were carrying the gold bars, and then the the camels had all the gold dust. Um, He probably also had about 100 elephants in this caravan, too, who were also carrying people and supplies. Um, But this trip from Niani to Mecca was more than 4,000 miles. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So along the way, Musa gave gold to the poor that he met along the route. He gave to the cities he passed on the way, including Cairo and Medina, and he also traded gold for souvenirs. So his journey was documented by several eyewitnesses along his route who were in awe of his wealth and excessive procession. And records exist in a variety of sources, including journals, um, histories, and drawings. So um, he's, you know, he's has all this gold with him, super rich, has his big, big entourage. He's giving stuff out. His massive spending and generous donations actually accidentally created a massive 10-year-long gold recession. Oh my so, gosh, because he had so much gold? Yes, because now everybody <laughs> has so much gold. So in the cities of Cairo, Medina, and Mecca, the sudden influx of gold actually ended up devaluing the metal significantly. Oh and God. prices of goods and wares became greatly inflated. So he he may have actually realized his mistake like on the way back, and he borrowed all the gold that he could like carry back from money lenders in Cairo at a high interest rate. <laughs> so this is the only time recorded in history that basically one man directly controlled the price of gold. <laughs> How rich yeah. do you have to be to completely like inflate? <laughs> right. 
because yeah. you have so like, much. Whoops. Now now every whoops. everybody has gold. Everybody has gold dust. Everybody's everything. Yeah. And they're like, well, actually now a carrot will cost you <laughs> that <laughs> bar of gold, please. Yeah. Um, and according to the British Museum, during the reign of Mansa Musa, the Empire of Mali accounted for almost half of the old world's gold and all of it oh. belonged to him. Oh my gosh. So, That's wild. Yeah. That's crazy to think about. Yeah. So Mansa Musa, again, his empire was one of the largest in the world at the time. He's reported to have observed that it would take a year to travel from one end of his empire to the other. And while this may be like a bit of an exaggeration, it is known that during his pilgrimage to Mecca, one of his generals, Sagmandia, extended the empire by capturing the Songhai capital of Gao, which was an important commercial center involved in the trans-Saharan trade. Um, That Songhai kingdom had measured several hundreds of miles across, so that conquest meant the acquisition of another vast territory. Oh my gosh. The 14th century traveler Ibn Battuta noted that it took about four months to travel from the northern borders of the Mali Empire to Niani in the south. And oh the total gosh. kingdom stretched for about 2,000 miles from the Atlantic Ocean all the way to modern-day Niger, taking in parts of what are now Senegal, Mauritania, Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, the Gambia, Guinea-Bissau, Guinea, and the Ivory Coast. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's like most of Africa. Yes. Yeah, most of Western Africa. So um, Mansa Musa had put Mali and himself on the map, quite literally. So let me Mm -hmm. tell you about the Catalan Atlas. So the Catalan Atlas is a medieval world map, um, a map of Mundi, if you will, created in about 1375, which has been described as the most important map of the medieval period in the Catalan language. And despite its name, it's actually not an atlas. Um, It was made as a gift for Charles V, the king of France, and was drawn by the Jewish cartographer Abraham Kresk, um, C-R-E-S-Q-U-E-S. The map known as the Catalan Atlas was a showcase of the state-of-the-art map making in the 14th century. Oh, wow. It consisted originally of six vellum leaves. Um, They were each about like 25 by 20 inches, folded vertically and painted in various colors, including with actual gold and silver. And these were later mounted on the front and back of five wooden panels. So the first two leaves of the, of the atlas contain texts in Catalan covering cosmography, astronomy, and astrology. These okay. texts are accompanied by illustrations. So um, these texts and illustrations emphasize the Earth's spherical shape and the state of the known world. They also provide information to sailors on tides and how to tell time correctly at night. Oh, cool. The four remaining leaves make up the actual map with Jerusalem located close to the center Um, Two leaves depict the Orient, and the remaining two are Europe and North Africa. The map is about 14 square feet in size once you put it all together, and it shows illustrations of many cities. So there's Christian cities marked with a cross, other cities are marked with a dome, and each city's political allegiance is indicated by a flag. So they have special wavy lines for the ocean and mm-hmm. place names of important ports are written in red. So this is, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty useful map at the time. Yeah. And the illustrations and most of the texts are actually oriented toward the edges of the map, which suggested it was intended to be used by laying it flat and walking around it. So that's kind of oh, cool. That is cool. Yeah. So it, it kind of gives you like, like almost a three dimensional kind of quality. A little bit. To yeah. It. So like yeah, you yeah. can, you can like travel around the edges and see. Mm-hmm. And, but it knew that the world was, uh, you know, was a sphere. Yes. 
So there is, in the Africa portion, a drawing of an African king sitting on a golden throne atop Timbuktu holding a giant piece of gold in his hand. And that is Mansa Musa. Of course. So the caption explains, this Moorish ruler is named Mansa Musa, Lord of Guinea. And this king is the richest and most distinguished ruler of this whole region on account of the great quantity of gold that is found in his lands. So it was tales of gold like this that would later inspire European explorers basically to brave disease and conquering people and inhospitable Mm -hmm. terrain to find the fabled riches of Timbuktu, which was known as the golden city of the desert, basically like an African El Dorado. That's interesting. So so the fact that Mansa Musa's like, uh, his lore, like mm-hmm. his story was kind of traveling all over the world that they were like, ooh, this guy is so rich that I need to get in there and get get me yeah. some of that. He has so much gold. Like we can, why don't we, we just go there and get some of that gold too? Yeah. Right. So that's the Catalan Atlas and it's a, it is a really, really cool piece of um, of history. Is it? Does it still exist? Yeah, it's a uh, um, the the Bibliothèque Nationale of um, France has it. Ooh, that's mm-hmm. cool. Okay. So, a little bit on trade and education as well. So Timbuktu, mm-hmm. especially, it started out as a seasonal settlement about twelve miles north of the Niger River, and it became a permanent settlement early in the twelfth century. After a shift in trading routes, um, Timbuktu flourished from the trade in salt, gold, ivory, and also slaves. It became part of the Mali Empire early in the 14th century. And under Mansa Musa, Timbuktu grew to be a very important commercial city, having caravan connections with Egypt and all other important trade centers in North Africa. Um, Side by side with the encouragement of trade and commerce, learning and the arts received royal patronage. So scholars who were mainly interested in history, um, the theology of the Quran, and law turned the Mosque of Sankore in Timbuktu into a teaching center, laying the foundations for the University of Sankore. Musa embarked on a large building program, and due to the lack of stone in the region, Mali buildings were typically constructed using beaten earth reinforced mm. with wood. So there are two key buildings at the University of Timbuktu that are still standing. There's a mosque. Its name is <laughs> Jin Garaber. D-G-I-N-G-U-E-R-E-B-E-R. Jingarabere Mosque. It is made entirely of earth plus organic materials like fiber, straw, and wood. It has three inner courts, two minarets, and 25 rows of pillars aligned in an east-west direction in prayer space for 2,000 people. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It is one of the four... um, Madrasas, which is the Arabic word for any type of educational institution that Mm. comprise the University of Timbuktu. And the Sankore Madrasa has its roots in the Sankore Mosque, which was founded in 989 AD. And this temple had accumulated a wealth of books from throughout the Muslim world, becoming not only a center of worship, but a center of learning. And by the time of Mansa Musa, the Sankore Madrasa had accumulated the largest collection of books in Africa since the Library of Alexandria. Oh with my gosh. Somewhere between 400,000 and 700,000 manuscripts. Oh my gosh. Mm hmm. So this level of learning was superior to that of many um, other Islamic centers in the world. And it was also capable of housing 25,000 students. So this is what this is big. 
That's enormous. It's enormous. So this university became a center of learning and culture. It basically drew Muslim scholars from around Africa and the Middle East to Timbuktu. Mm. So the king was inspired by the holy sites he'd seen on his pilgrimage and on his return to Mali. He built a dazzling audience chamber at Niani and mosques at Gao and Timbuktu. During this period, there was an advanced level of urban living in the major centers of Mali. And at the height of its power, the Mali Empire had at least 400 cities. And it was said that Musa built a new mosque every single Friday during his reign. <laughs> you know. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Every Friday. Oh, it's Friday. Yep. Here we go. Get it together, guys. Go to town. So um, in 1330, the kingdom of Masi invaded and conquered the city of Timbuktu. Um, Gao had already been captured by Musa's general, and Musa quickly regained Timbuktu, though. He built a rampart and a stone fort and placed a standing army to protect the city from future invaders. Um, so his palace there has actually since vanished, you know, because it's 700 mm-hmm. years later. But sure. the university and the mosque are still standing in Timbuktu today. Wow. That's so crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. So... The death date of Mansa Musa is a little bit debated among modern historians and the Arab scholars who recorded the history of the Mali Empire. Uh, when compared to the reigns of his successors, his son, um, Mansa Maghan, who ruled from 1337 to 1341, and his older brother, Mansa Suleiman, who recorded from 1341 to about 1360. Um, so Mansa Musa's calculated date of death is about 1337. So he would have died around age 57, and the empire was inherited by his sons, but they were not as good at, at being rulers they as never he was. Are. I they know. They never are. So, <laughs> so basically, the Mali Empire prospered for about another century or so before new trade routes were opened up by the Portuguese. And the discovery of new gold fields and access to the southern coast of West Africa meant that by the mid-15th century, Mali no longer monopolized trade in the region. Uh, okay. So it's kind of like we're, we're getting in the, the Europeans. So the leadership wasn't as strong. Yeah. Um, Globalization is really starting to take effect. You're getting a lot yep. of the explorers. That map was like advertising, like, by the way, it was so much gold in West Africa, yeah. right? So Mali kind of was no longer what it once was by about the by about the 1600s. Mm. Um, but as I go back to like the title of this episode, when adjusted for inflation, Mansamusa's wealth is believed to have been around. Four hundred billion dollars. Oh, my God. that's not that is an an amount of oh just let's just say number. It, it's just a number. Yeah, it doesn't forget mean about anything money anymore. Yeah, no, it's just okay. You have all the money. You have all of it. Yeah, exactly. That's so much. So much. Money. Yeah. <laughs> so yep. much. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. No, you're right. Definitely the richest man who ever lived. (laughs) So one more thing. Um, The Block Museum of Art from Northwestern University put together a really great traveling exhibition called Caravans of Gold, Fragments in Time, Art, Culture, and Exchange Across Medieval Saharan Africa. Um, So their website said that this, this exhibit was the first major exhibition, quote, addressing the scope of the Saharan trade and the shared history of West Africa, the Middle East, North Africa, and Europe from the 8th to 16th centuries. Weaving stories about interconnected histories, the exhibition showcases the objects and ideas that connected at the crossroads of the medieval Sahara and celebrates West Africa's historic and under-recognized global significance. So um, this started traveling in um, 2019, actually, and it's actually 
slated to be at the Smithsonian National Museum of African Art until November 2020. Um, hopefully, Ooh. they'll be able to extend that so that maybe more visitors can see these amazing artifacts and works together. But they have yeah, a really sure. great website, um, caravansofgold.org, which includes images and information about key objects and artworks from the exhibition, as well as interviews with experts and resources to support teaching and learning. There's some great artifacts that they have photographed there. There's um, a really great timeline about the about the Saharan trade during that time period. Mm -hmm. And there are um, images of the, um, the Catalan Atlas with that exhibit too. So cool. Yeah. We'll post it on our social meds so that uh, everyone can access that website. That sounds cool. And so that, that's what I wanted you to know about Mansa Musa. That was awesome. I learned so much. That is so cool. I cannot believe that I did not hear about this person beforehand. Shame on me. Shame on my history <laughs> teachers. <laughs> great. That was great. Thank you, Julia. Yeah, of course. So jumping off that, our quiz is called Going for the Gold. This is a quiz on golden characters in pop culture. Question one. Toodle, Scuffy the Tugboat, and the pokey little puppy are all characters in what distinctive book series for children that has been around since 1942? Question two. The third James Bond film finds Agent 007 investigating Auric Goldfinger, eventually uncovering Goldfinger's plans to contaminate the U.S. bullion depository at Fort Knox. Name either of the Bond girls from this movie who are played by Shirley Eaton and Honor Blackman. Question three. Thank you for being a friend. Now, please make up some more money. After the Golden Girls ended in 1992, Betty White, Rue McClanahan, and Estelle Getty reprised their characters in what CBS spinoff series that portrayed our former roommates now running a Miami hotel along with Don Cheadle and Cheech Marin? Question four. On what literary object would you find the following invitation? Quote, in your wildest dreams, you could not imagine such things could happen to you. Just wait and see. And now, here are your instructions. The day I have chosen for the visit is the first day of the month of February. On this day, and no other, you must come to the factory gates at 10 o'clock sharp in the morning. Don't be late. Question five. Aisha is the golden high priestess of the sovereign who hires Peter Quill, Gamora, Drax, and others to protect valuable batteries from an interdimensional monster in what 2017 sequel with yet another super sweet mixtape as its soundtrack? Question six. Ari Gold is the talent agent of A-list movie star Vincent Chase, who's often depicted hanging out with his childhood friends from Queens in what TV series that somehow ran for eight seasons? Question seven. The plot of this mystery work from 1843 follows William Legrand living on Sullivan's Island, South Carolina, after he's bitten by what appears to be a scarab-like insect. Legrand later ends up uncovering a great treasure buried by the infamous Captain Kidd, deciphering a cryptogram written in invisible ink, of course, in what short story? Question 8. Following 10 years of writing, shooting, reshooting, and editing, Michael Scott is finally ready to screen his action film during a very memorable season seven episode of The Office. After secret agent Michael Skarn is forced into retirement due to the death of his wife, Catherine Zeta Skarn, 
The president of the United States requests that he prevent bad guy Golden Face from blowing up the NHL All-Star Game and killing several hostages. What is the name of this action film whose incomplete screenplay was referenced on the show on multiple occasions? Question 9. Woman in Gold is a 2015 biographical drama film based on the true story of Maria Altman, an elderly Jewish refugee in L.A. who fought the government of Austria to reclaim a painting of her aunt, which was stolen from her relatives by the Nazis prior to World War II. Here we have a two-part question. First, who played grown-up Maria Altman in the film? And next, which famous artist painted the work, Portrait of Adele Block Bauer I, also called The Woman in Gold? And finally, question 10. Cyborg 3 Protocol is better known by what name? I'll give you about a minute to think, and we'll be back with your answers. Man, I'm rich like mine, some Musa. To homie, she my shooter. I keep Amazon on my Amazons. Stay strapped like an ace bandage on. She got a rifle pointed at you. Long barrel sweep of that boom. Red dye that you been do. I'll blast you to 10 that's why I keep on my books, though. Blue eyes want to take a look. No, they never seen a cause before. I like University of Psycho. Right, they steady throwing that salt in that shade. But I switch it for go like 10 common and straight. Because knowledge yourself always trumps any hate. And hope for yourself will cut diamonds like spades. Yeah. Samori Ture. I won't let evil invade. This gold mine of mine, my brain is Wangara. Building on my reign like my name was Taharka. Fasake, yeah, Grio is a baller. Got gold all in my watch. But if you think my words just gold you spot, you got me messed up like botch. Cause I'm rich like Masa Musa. Rich like, rich like Masa Musa. Rich like Masa Musa. Rich like, rich like Masa Musa. I got stacks. I got brains. I got facts. Ain't no chains. Cause I'm rich like Masa Musa. Rich like, rich like Masa Musa. I was feeling good there for a minute. You should feel very good. This is a no, fun I mean, quiz. No, it's a fu- <laughs> no, it's a very fun quiz. It's a very fun quiz. Um, uh, okay. I. All right. All right. Here we go. All right. Question one. Toodle, Scuffy the Tugboat, and the Pokey Little Puppy are all characters in what distinctive book series for children that has been around since 1942? Uh, those are the little golden books. Yes, you are right. Yes. Um, so their idea was basically to produce a colorful, more durable, and affordable children's book than those that were being published at the time, which typically sold for about 2 or $3. So if the print run for each title was 50,000 copies instead of just 25,000, the books could affordably sell for 25 cents a piece. And that was like one of their big selling points was like, mm-hmm. oh, you can buy this kid's book for like one eighth of the price of all of these other kids' books. So Simon & Schuster printed the first batch of 12 books in 1942, um, three editions totaling 1.5 million books sold out within five months of publication, and the rest is history. So a long time running. All right, question two. The third James Bond film finds Agent 007 investigating Oric Goldfinger, who had plans to contaminate the U.S. Bullion Depository at Fort Knox. Name either of the Bond girls from this movie, who are played by Shirley Eaton and Honor Blackman. So, um, at first I thought you were going to ask me what the name of the movie was and I was going to go, Goldfinger! <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but I, I can't think of any, okay, this is, I'm so sorry for this. I'm so sorry for this to our listeners, but the only one I can think of is 
Pussy Galore. You are correct. Yes. Okay, great. Honor Blackman was Pussy Galore. Um, she was Goldfinger's personal pilot and leader of an all-female team of pilots known oh. as Pussy Galore's Flying Circus. Good lord. So, concerned about <laughs> censors, the producers thought about changing the character's name to instead Kitty Galore, but mm. the director, Guy Hamilton, said, quote, if you were a 10-year-old boy and knew what the name meant, you weren't a 10-year-old boy. You were a dirty little bitch. <laughs> about this word but like if he knows what it means like yeah you got other problems <laughs> You're a little, little bitch wow all right <laughs> he also said quote the american censor was concerned but we got around that by inviting him and his wife out to dinner and told him we were big supporters of the republican party <laughs> Wow. So (laughs) that's all it takes, man. I know. So though the American censors didn't interfere with the name in the film, they actually refused to allow the name Pussy Galore to appear on promotional materials. And for the U.S. market, she was subsequently called Miss Galore or Goldfinger's Mm. personal pilot. Oh, boy. Um, The other Bond girl in this film, maybe... More famous, not for her name, but because of the scene. Shirley Eaton played Jill Masterson, who was Goldfinger's aide-de-camp. And Bond catches um, her helping the villain cheat at a game of cards. So James Bond obviously seduces her. But because she betrayed Goldfinger, Goldfinger had her, basically had her killed. Um, She was completely painted in gold paint. And according mm-hmm. to Bond, she died from skin suffocation. So according to only, again, this is only like a really small part in the film, but the image of her painted gold mm-hmm. is like super famous. And she actually appeared on the cover of Life magazine in November 64 in that image too. Um, I also read somewhere that they thought that that was a real thing. Yeah. So they actually like, there was the small of her back. They exactly. kept. Yeah. Like a little patch. A li- yeah. You know, <laughs> so your skin can breathe out of that, like a blowhole. <laughs> uh, turns out skin suffocation, not a real, not thing. a real thing, but you know, yeah. Like the, like, I think that maybe that was a rumor going around with the, t- the guy that played the tin man too. That, oh, sure. Yeah. But Really? That was probably more like the, the paint was, full of poisonous chemicals it was yeah. more like that rather That's than like what killed him yeah or made him sick yeah, yeah. so yes again <laughs> the two bond girls from goldfinger are pussy galore and jill masterson and a bond you know. like bond girl like the term it just means like mm-hmm. a character who's like a love interest or or a companion for james bond and yeah in that series it doesn't necessarily mean like his girlfriend or whatever just like she can be a bad guy yeah, exactly. Like you can be a bad guy as a Bond it's usually, girl. There's usually two or three, and at least one dies early in the movie. Like usually in a terrible way. <laughs> oh, like a horrible way. Like either he kills her or she's killed by the bad guy and he's like somehow nonplussed. Yeah. And it's just like, <laughs> it's like whatever, there's another girl. Like yeah. I, That's why there's a, more. There's, That's why there's multiple ones. There's always more. <laughs> All right. (laughs) Question three. Thank you for being a friend. Now, please make us some more money. 
After the Golden Girls ended in 1992, Betty White, Rue McClanahan, and Estelle Getty reprised their characters in what CBS spinoff series that portrayed our former roommates now running a Miami hotel along with Don Cheadle and Cheech Marin. First of all, I can't believe Don Cheadle was in this, but right? um, yeah, uh, um, I did know this at one point. It's like it's like the name of the hotel. It's like, um, oh God, it has like a tropical esque name, like like the shady veranda or like, like something like that. <laughs> uh, but I cannot remember it for the life of me. Is veranda in it? No. By any point? Oh, damn. Okay. Then I don't think I know. Okay. This was called the golden palace. The golden palace. Yeah. Oh, shoot. So it was okay. on from 1992 all the way till 1993. Oh yeah. Yikes. And, so the series focused on the interactions between guests at the hotel and the hotel staff, as well as mm. between the Golden Girls and the previous, you know, members there. So sure. guest stars were very frequent. Um, basically, like they took over, the three ladies took over this hotel, and like in order to make it work, like it was just them doing all of the work along with Don Cheadle and Cheech Marin. <laughs> I I don't know. All right. Uh, yeah, it's just you can't. Lightning doesn't strike twice. Right. You know. Yeah. Um, so there, so Golden Palace was one spinoff from Golden Girls. There are actually two other shows that were technically spinoffs from the Golden Girls. So the first was Empty Nest, which was on from 1988 to 1995. So, um, the Westons that were the, the main family there, they were neighbors of the Golden Girls in Miami. So that spun off early. And then from 1991 to 1994, we had the show Nurses, which had spun off of Empty Nest, technically making it also a Golden Girl spinoff. A Golden Girl spinoff. So the spinoffs from Golden Girls are Golden Palace, Empty Nest, and Nurses. Nurses. Mm -hmm. Never heard of it. It was on for three years. So longer than the Golden Palace. (laughs) There you go. All right. Question four. On what literary object would one find the following invitation? Quote, in your wildest dreams, you could not imagine such things could happen to you. Just wait and see. And now here are your instructions. The day I have chosen for the visit is the first day of the month of February. On this day and on no other, you must come to the factory gates at 10 o'clock sharp in the morning. Don't be late. Uh, That would be the golden ticket. You are correct. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yes, ma'am. Uh, again, five golden tickets are hidden in Wonka bars and shipped out to countries all over the world. And the search for them turned into a worldwide mania. And each ticket find was a press sensation. The five children that eventually found them were Augustus Gloop, Mike TV, Charlie Bucket, Veruca Salt, and Violet Beauregard. Um, what I find interesting is like various unused and draft material from Dahl's early versions of the novel have mm. been found. And in the initial unpublished drafts of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, nine golden tickets were distributed to, oh, tour, wow. the, to tour the factory. And the children faced more rooms and more temptations to test their, out their self-control. Um, and so like characters' names changed. Like, you know, mm. he combined a couple characters into to make one character, that kind of thing. But like my favorite thing I read was the original name of the character who was eventually called Mike TV. His original (laughs) draft manuscript name was Herpes Trout. No. (laughs) No. Uh, Roll doll, you dirty bird. (laughs) He was gross. gross person uh, and also an anti-semite but yeah. you know 
I did <laughs> at one point I did read somebody tweeted something which was kind of funny. They were talking about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and they were like, "So let me get this straight. Like there were five golden tickets. They were distributed around the world, and all the kids that got it were all white, white kids. Yeah, <laughs> white kids that spoke okay. English. Yeah, yeah, that all spoke English exactly. Yeah, yeah. Herpes Trout, everybody. Herpes Trout. <laughs> Got like a good username. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Ooh, yeah. Deep cut. All right, <laughs> question five. Aisha is the golden high priestess of the sovereign who hires Peter Quill, Gamora, Drax, and others to protect valuable batteries from an interdimensional monster in what 2017 sequel with yet another super sweet mixtape as its soundtrack? That would be Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. You are correct. Yes. Um, Aisha is played by actress Elizabeth Debicki, and she's the golden high priestess and leader of the sovereign people who are a genetically engineered race who are, quote, gold and perfect and wanting to be physically and mentally impeccable. Um, mm-hmm. Her character, Aisha, is also known in the Marvel Universe as Kismet, Paragon, and Her. Her. Ooh, mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. Um, the second movie, Steve and I watched both of them. I really liked the first one. The second one was fine. I just felt like the charm and joy of the first one wasn't it was quite a little there. Bit, it was lacking a yeah. little bit. Yeah. I can see that. Hmm. Question six. Ari Gold is the talent agent of A-list movie star Vincent Chase, who's often depicted hanging out with his childhood friends from Queens in what TV series that somehow ran for eight seasons? Ugh, that's Entourage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So Ari Gold was played by Jeremy Piven, who was nominated four consecutive times for an Emmy for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series. And he won the award three times in a row in 2006, 2007, and 2008. The early 2000s was a hell of a drug. Weird time for TV. Terrible time. Bad time for TV. When Jeremy Piven is the paragon of acting three years in a row for television... That's when we re- like everyone needs to just sit down and really consider just reassess reassess. <laughs> it's rough. All right. Question seven. The plot of this mystery work from 1843 follows William Legrand living on Sullivan's Island, South Carolina, after he's bitten by what appears to be a scarab like insect. Legrand later ends up uncovering a great treasure buried by the infamous Captain Kidd, deciphering a cryptogram written in invisible ink, of course, in what short story? Is it like the golden beetle? You're very close. Is it the golden bug? The golden insect? The golden... Um, Do you know who would have written this? Mystery work from 1843? I mean, probably, mm, you know, that guy. <laughs> uh, God, all I can think of is um, Wilkie Collins, but... Seems like the golden moonstone. <laughs> That's the less known version. <laughs> it's the less known version yeah. of the moonstone. Um, uh, who? And it's American. American. Obviously. Uh-huh. 1843. Golden. Ooh, is it Mark Twain? It's not Mark Twain. It's Shoot. It's the guy that writes mysteries in America. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Um, damn, uh, the guy who writes mysteries in America, uh, I don't know, Clive Cussler. No, that's, <laughs> he didn't write me. Must he, he was very just, old when he died though. He was very old when he died. Um, I don't know. Golden beetle, golden. What is it? This is by Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, shoot. 
dummy. It's called the gold bug. The gold bug. Ooh, I don't think I've ever heard of this short story. Okay. So he originally submitted it as an entry to a writing contest in the Philadelphia dollar paper. And his Mm. story won the grand prize. It was $100. It was probably the Mm. single largest sum he ever received for any of his works. Um, So the gold bug was an instant success and it was the most popular and most widely read of Poe's works during his lifetime. Oh, wow. I had no idea. It is a a good story. Um, It also helped to popularize cryptograms and secret writing. Okay. Oh, okay. So William F. Friedman, who was America's foremost cryptologist, initially became interested in cryptography after reading Goldbug as a child, interests that he later put to use in deciphering Japan's purple code during World War II. Cool. Yeah. All right. Question eight. Following 10 years of writing, shooting, reshooting, and editing, Michael Scott is finally ready to screen his action film during a very memorable season seven episode of The Office. What is the name of this action film whose incomplete screenplay was referenced on the show on multiple occasions? Again, I <laughs> I did know this at one point because it's mentioned so often, but I have not watched, I have full disclosure, considering that everyone is watching reruns of The yeah. Office right now, I have not watched The Office since it was running currently so it's been a very long time since i've watched an episode of the office ah it's like oh wait 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 it's like um oh god it's like uh shit it's it's like a code name um it's like deep deep something like uh oh oh wait no i got it something midnight (laughs) shoot it's like Oh, God, it's, I'm going to be so mad when I don't get it. All I can think of is like Deep Purple Midnight, and that's, <laughs> that's not it. It's something, something midnight. Oh, God. Uh, just tell me. Just tell me what it is. All right, I'll give so you a mad. third of a point for that. Okay. <laughs> threat level midnight. Threat level midnight. Damn it. I did know that. I did know that it's somewhere in the old brain box it was there. It's, it's threat great. level midnight. Mm-hmm. Oh, um in December 2019 the entire film which was about 25 minutes um with no episode clips it was released on the office's YouTube channel. Oh my and gosh. various lines from the episode are sampled in the song My Strange Addiction by singer-songwriter Billie Eilish on her debut album When We Fall When We All Fall Asleep Where Do We Go? Oh right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Almost there. Question nine. Woman in Gold is a 2015 drama film based on the true story of Maria Altman, an elderly Jewish refugee in L.A. who fought the government of Austria to reclaim a painting of her aunt, which was stolen from her relatives by the Nazis prior to World War II. Two-part question. Who played Mm -hmm. grown-up Maria Altman in the film and which famous artist painted the work Portrait of Adele Block Bauer I, also called The Woman in Gold? Uh, That is Helen Mirren. Mm Mm-hmm. And Klimt. Yes, you are right. Yes. Um, so interesting backstory. So the portrait was commissioned by the sitter's husband, Ferdinand Blockbauer, who was a Jewish banker and sugar producer. The painting was stolen by the Nazis in 1941 and displayed at the Osterreichisch Gallery Belvedere. 
The portrait is the final and most fully representative work of Klimt's golden phase. Um, following the Anschluss of Austria by Nazi Germany, Ferdinand fled Vienna and made his way to Switzerland, leaving behind much of his wealth, including his large art collection. So the painting was stolen along with the remainder of Ferdinand's assets. And the lawyer acting on behalf of the German state gave the portrait to the Gallery Belvedere, claiming he was doing the right thing, even after Ferdinand died in 1945. And his will stated that the estate should go to his nephew and two nieces. Um, but in 1998, an Austrian investigative journalist established that the gallery contained several works stolen from Jewish owners in the war and that the gallery had refused to return the art to the original owners or even to acknowledge that any theft had taken place. So mm. one of Ferdinand's nieces, Maria Altman, hired the lawyer Randall Schoenberg to make a claim against the gallery for the return of five works by Klimt. And after a seven-year legal claim, which included a hearing in front of the Supreme Court, an arbitration committee oh agreed that the painting and others had been stolen from the family and should be returned to Altman. By the way, the the... Subject of this portrait, when she yes. was still alive in Vienna, Adele Blockbauer hosted a very popular salon of Austrian artists and their <gasps> friends. Oh my god! Including the one and only. Oh my god, our boy Alma Mahler. Yes. Oh my god. Go back and listen to that episode if you have it. It's a great. Oh my god. It's it's mind blowing. It's mind blowing. <laughs> truly, <laughs> and- one of my favorite episodes. And finally, question 10. Cyborg 3 Protocol is better known by what name? Cyborg 3 Protocol. Mm -hmm. Is it it C-3PO? Yes. (laughs) Yes. I was like, who is a gold android? Exactly. <laughs> so I'm not a Star Warser myself, but apparently no. C-3PO was built by Anakin Skywalker, designed as a protocol droid intended to assist in etiquette, customs, and translation, boasting that he is, quote, fluent in over six million forms of communication. And along with his droid counterpart and friend R2-D2, C-3PO provides comic relief within the narrative structure of the film, serving as a foil. And Anthony Daniels has portrayed the character in 11 of 12 Star Wars cinematic films released to date. Uh, apparently, and I think I read this somewhere, um, when the movies came out, C-3PO was not like loved because he's kind of annoying. He's really annoying. Um, so he was kind of like the Jar Jar Binks of the, <laughs> of the first, early movie. Yeah. Of the early movies. I mean, now he's like beloved. Like, you know, you can't, you can't, you can't have a Star Wars without a C-3PO. With- Exactly. But apparently when it first came out, people were like, oh, kill the stupid robot already. I hate him. (laughs) Cool. That was great. Great. I feel good about that. Great job, Lauren. Woo. Great job, everyone. (laughs) Thank you, Julia. Thank you. Um, And thank you again to Declan for giving us that suggestion. I hope we did your Molly Empire suggestion well. Sorry we did some swears. Yeah. Sorry we did some swears. Earmuffs Declan's mom. Sorry. Declan's mom, we're so sorry. Um, so uh, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you for spending your time with us. Uh, please rate, review, and subscribe. You can tell yeah. a friend. Tell a friend. Yeah. You know, when you're Zooming with your friends, tell them about us. Uh, and uh, thank you again for listening, guys. Yes, we'll get you all next time. Bye. Bye.